Thank you for joining our podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. Stay tuned as together we'll study God's Word. Well, good morning, everybody. Or as Darth Vader would say, good morning. Um, great to be with you and happy February. No, March. Happy March, everybody. It's awesome. Do you believe it? Time is just flying. Um, we're going to go into God's Word, and we do that every Sunday, and I'm glad you're here. And my words have zero power, zero. Uh, but we believe around here the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to do the work of God. And so we're going to ask God's Spirit to make uh, a way in us. And today, I, I really believe we're going at the epicenter of the battle for every single one of us, our identity in Christ. Uh, and Peter certainly does that today. And so we've just been praying that God would speak this morning, whether you're a teenager or I'm not going to point to the 80-year-olds in the room, whether you're 80-year-old or more, like this is a universal thing. And it's been a battle for millennia, the battle for our identity. So let's pray. Jesus, we need you so much. We're actually more desperate than we realize, and we come before you today um, asking for you in these next few minutes to take your word and imprint them in, in such an indelible way that they would stick more than the morning headlines or more than uh, whatever um, is cultural or more than uh, all the things that occupy our worries at 4 a.m. We would just trust and believe who you say we are. So speak to our hearts, Lord. We need it. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, have you ever been a victim of identity theft? that ever happened to you? Uh, identity theft is when, if, for those of you who live under a, a rock, <laughs> it's when uh, thieves steal your personal information in order to take over new accounts, uh, file fakes, tax returns, rent or buy properties, um, or do other criminal things in your name as if you were doing it. It's happened in our home a few times. It's a, it's a nightmare on the extreme end. It's a nuisance uh, at best. Uh, but then there's foolish people who welcome identity theft. Uh, I want you to meet Richard Todd Davis. Uh, let's put that next slide up, Ron. He's the, or was, the CEO of LifeLock. And LifeLock was a global leading identity theft company. It'll come up in a minute. He was so confident in his company's ability to block identity theft, he started a national campaign putting his social security out uh, over, over the screens, over billboards, on, on trucks, and, and what have you, even at truck stops, uh, which is crazy. The marketing ploy ultimately backfired when his social security number was compromised and people used it for taking out loans and opening new accounts. Not a way to build confidence in your identity theft company, right? Um, worse than this type of identity theft, though, is what I want to talk about today, spiritual identity theft. And we all fall prey. We all have been victim to spiritual identity theft. And I think in my own life, if only I guarded my spiritual identity with the same vigor that I guarded my passcodes, my social security numbers, my credit card numbers. See, spiritual identity theft happens when we believe who we are is what we do. Or who we are is what we've accomplished. 
or who we are is our relationship status or who we are is our appearance. It was spiritual identity theft that uh, overtook me in the 30s and caused me to break through uh, boundaries I'd set around time and disregard my family for the sake of work. It's spiritual identity theft that keeps the intention with that even in my 50s. Because I forget who I am and so I live differently. It was spiritual identity theft as a teenager, I didn't know Christ, that caused me to break through uh, sexual boundaries, substance boundaries, to the destruction of myself and of people around me. Because I forgot and didn't even know who I was. Uh, it's, it, was it was spiritual identity theft that constantly comes at me when we get opportunities to be so generous for the kingdom. And we think, oh my gosh, will God punish our generosity? Or is this our stuff or are we just stewarding it? Our resources, our money, and our other things. And so we hoard our time and resources and lack the generosity that God calls us to. It's spiritual identity theft that we believe in that actually remains and causes us to remain silent when we should speak up on behalf of the marginalized or unempowered or those who don't have a voice, regardless of who they are. See, when people ask me, uh, and it happens a lot, what difference has Jesus made in your life? I am very clear. Jesus defined me. Uh, prior to Jesus, I was completely undefined and lived into definitions put on me, an identity put on me by peers or by culture or by media. That is a recipe for disaster. Teenagers, that is a recipe for disaster. Jesus wants to define you too. And you will live in that tension your whole life. First Peter was written to a group of people on the outskirts of the Roman Empire who were wrestling with their identity. And if you understand it all, and we're trying to make you understand and help you understand the, uh, the cultural tsunami that was the Roman culture in the first century, you would understand how hard it was to live as a follower of Christ as your core identity within that culture. Because as we talked about here time and time again, that meant you were ostracized at best, killed at worst. And yet it's because they held to this identity that the, the group of followers of Jesus grew and grew and grew and ultimately, in the best way possible, overtook and transformed the Roman Empire and implemented things we have in our, even in our day, and we'll get into that a little bit. So our big idea today is this. Do you know who you are? Because when you know who you are, you'll know what to do. When you know who you are, you'll know how to live. What you'll find in 1 Peter is he constantly oscillates between this is who you are and then goes into command. So live this way. This is who you are. So live this way. This is who you are. So live this way. That's great parenting advice, by the way. And it's fantastic discipleship, living into who we are. So page one, let's talk through what, who does God say we are? Look at the page one, okay? Verse nine of 1 Peter chapter two. He says this, but you are. If you identify as a follower of Jesus, this is true of you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We're going to say this together, okay? Let's read this verse together, okay? Let's say it out loud. You ready? Here we go. 
but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, keep reading, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Amazing. It's what we just did, declared the praises. Let's go a little slower. Who are you? You're a chosen people. And notice they're all plural. They are all plural. Remember, you're following Jesus is very personal. It was never meant to be private. We say that all the time. Following Jesus is a communal thing. And so every statement here is plural. You are a chosen people, literally in the original language, a picked out genus. A picked out genus. Notice he didn't say you're a choice people. You're a chosen, a chosen people. There are followers of Christ who feel like they are choice people, almost exclusive, looking down on other people as if I made the choice to follow Christ. And I, God loves me because I'm making a choice to go to church or I'm making a choice to read my Bible or I'm making a choice to be kind to strangers. That's not what he's saying. The confession of chosen people is this. I know it's crazy, right? It's crazy that when I was in a state of rebellion against God, God made a choice to send his son to come run after me. And then when I was continually stiff-arming him, the Holy Spirit wouldn't give up on me. And he kept saying, turn to me. I'm at work. He's a way maker. He kept saying, turn to me, turn to me. It's crazy, right? This whole thing, I did nothing Nothing to come to Christ. He chose me. I just responded. That's what he's getting at here. You're a chosen people. Look what it says in Ephesians 1.4. This is so important. It's in your notes too, church. He being God. The apostle Paul said this. He chose us. He chose us to be his very own, joining us to himself. Now look at this. When did God make that choice? even before he laid the foundation of the universe. I'm into the songs that we're singing. Uh, One of them came from a a band called Hillsong United. They have an amazing, uh, do we call them albums, CDs, whatever? It's all electronic. I don't know what we call them these days. But uh, an eight-track tape. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, but the line, it's a song called, As You Find Me, and there's a refrain, and it says this, I was found before I was lost. I was yours before I was not. Before the foundation of the world, what this means is before God said, let there be light, he said, let there be Gary, child of God. Before he said, let there be light, he said, let there be Mia, child of God. He made a choice. That's who we are. Uh, I've, you know, raising five daughters, I I care a lot about their identity. And um, I know, I know, and I've told them, I'm so sorry, blanket, please forgive me uh, for any pain in the pain that I cause you. Because I know as a dad that you're going to have a dad wound. And just in advance, I'm so sorry. And as you grow older, please come back to me and talk to me about that. You have unconditional access to me. Uh, But early on, when my 28-year-old was four years old, I wanted her to understand this chosen aspect. 
And so I remember where we were. We were in Chicago, and I, can, I remember the first time I did this, where her bed was. I'm right in that bedroom right now. Her name's Hannah. And I said, Hannah, she was four. I said, let me ask you a question. If God lined up all the four-year-olds in the world, all the four-year-old little girls in the world, and he said to Daddy, you can have any little girl to be yours, who do you think I'd choose? She thought about it, and she said, with a question, would you choose me? And I said, absolutely, I'd choose you, because I love you. And that mantra has continued in our home, past 18 and now 28, to the point where on Father's Day, I get a card from Hannah, hey, Dad, if God lines up all the bald, 50-something-year-old dads in the world, guess who do I choose? But that's the whole point, right? That God chose you. And in this original readers, they're, they're under this massive pain of price to follow Christ. And Peter's saying to them, I know the Roman, Roman Empire is kicking you to the curb, but where it really matters, from the throne room of heaven, you've been chosen. And then he goes on, you're a royal priesthood. You are king, literally kingly priest. To the original readers, that would be an oxymoron. And what it means is you're a community that's different than any other community on the planet. And let me explain this for us, okay? Because every other community in the Roman Empire was built on power. But he's saying to the church, no, 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 you're a community built on service, See, in Israel, kings and priests had two different offices. Let me explain them. Uh, to, uh, to these readers, they knew what a priest was. A priest stood at the temple with his back to the people, representing the people to sacrifice before God. That was the role of a priest. He was a servant-hearted man. Once a year, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people, back to the people, serving God. In their day, the job of a king was completely different. Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, they turned to the people, facing the people, sword in hand, saying, obey me or else. Do you understand the difference between the two? And here, Peter's melded them together and saying, no, no, you are kingly priests. You are royal priesthood. You know who modeled this? Jesus. Remember, remember uh, Palm Sunday? The triumphal entry, people are shouting, he's coming into town as a king of kings and lord of lords, and what's he riding? A donkey showing his humility. He is the ultimate royal priest, and in following Jesus, we are the royal priesthood. How did Jesus conquer the world? What was his power, his love, his forgiveness, his authority? And in essence, again, go back to the original readers. That's how you read the scripture. What did the original readers read? They were being inundated with this cultural force, conform or die. And what did they do? They would not conform, and they used their humility and service to transform a culture. Never power. They never powered up on people. And then, look at this. You're a holy nation, literally a set-apart ethnos, a set-apart ethnicity. 
This is important, everybody. Are you still with me? Are we good? Uh, he's writing to, in the Roman Empire, every city was multi-ethnic. Because of Pax Romana, every city could live in uh, peace because of Roman rule and because of Roman roads. And it was easy to get from city to city. So within cities were different ethnicities. And to the churches that Peter wrote, you know who they were filled with? And this was so unique. They were filled with Greek, Roman, African, Asian, Jewish people. And here's what he's getting at here. He's like, look, I love that you love your Greek culture. I love that you love your Roman culture. I love that you love your African culture. I love that you love your Asian culture. I love that you love your Jewish culture. Yet Peter has the audacity to say, but your primary identity will create a whole new culture, a holy culture, a kingdom culture. In other words, are you ready? I'm 100% Italian. I am in Christ before I'm in Italian. I am in Christ before I'm a, whatever my political party is. I am in Christ before every other differentiator of who I am. That's what he's saying. Again, back to Paul. Look what he said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. He goes, hey, here, there's, and friends, this was scandalous in Paul's day. There's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. All these are racial differentiators. Barbarian, Scythian, so let's talk about society. There's no slave or free. Do you know how radical that was in the Roman Empire? When a slave came to church and a free woman came to church and they were both on equal footing before the cross and the free person was serving the slave communion. Do you know how radical that was? That's what changed the world. But Christ is what, church? Christ is what, church? All and he's in all. So important. Oh my gosh, he has the audacity, right? Don't dare think that you could pray a prayer and keep living your life according to a cultural identity. Your identity is kingdom first, ethnicity second. Kingdom first, politics second. And you'll see it on page three. You put your kingdom allegiance before your political alliance. It's so important. And then look at this. Not only are we a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we're God's special possession. In other words, the literal translation is this. You are a people treasured. A people treasured. I got a riddle. What do you give God who literally has everything and owns everything? What do you give him? He, he owns it all. He owns the mountains. He owns the redwood trees. He owns the humpback whales. He owns the stars. He owns our galaxy. He owns the universe. He owns the millions and millions and billions and billions of galaxies in the universe, in every other universe. He owns it all. Yet there's one thing that makes him feel rich. Scripture is clear. There's one thing he treasures. He sent his son to earth for one thing and one thing only this, the church, people who've been chosen, who sense the spirit calling them, who repented and turned to Christ and are living a new life under a new ruler with a new ethic in a transformed way. 
I want you to know something, and this is so important. And when, when our identity gets co-opted by culture, it really devalues us. This kingdom identity is your uh, worth statement once and for all. You ready? And you've heard us say this before. You're worth a son to God. You're worth a son to God. Yeah, your teachers, high schoolers, they give you grades. And yeah, colleges accept you or don't accept you based on your grades. And yeah, if you blow it on the, on the practice field, you don't get the starting position on the real field. But in God's eyes, your performance doesn't matter. The cross is a great equalizer. You are loved by God Almighty through Christ. That's what he's getting at here. You're God's treasure you're the thing that makes him feel rich. Um, this cross behind me, it's been hanging up there for, uh, I think, 15 years-ish. Uh, and I remember when we put that piece of art, that, that symbol in the sanctuary, and uh, it was designed by a designer in, uh, actually in South Carolina. And it was designed based on, remember the Passion of the Christ? Remember that movie? It was modeled after that cross. Uh, and then it was built in Southern California. It's high-density foam. And then it was spray-painted. And you want to know a secret? Before it was put up, our board, our leadership team, it was laying right back there, upside down. And we had Sharpies. And one night for our board meeting, we wrote the names of people. And then they, this is before we did anything in the schools. We wrote schools in Redwood City asking God to bless these schools. And it's all on the back of that cross. Names of people who don't know Christ and our schools in Revit City. And look what God has done through the schools. Uh, well, it, it hung and we did a whole special dedication of that. And I remember we flew in the artist who created it. And I remember we walked in those doors and we were standing back there. And I was talking to him, he's a young guy in his 30s and great graphic artist and designer and he, he was standing on the back wall and all of a sudden he stopped talking to me when he saw the cross. And the look on his eyes, all he'd seen was what was on the screen and now he saw it in real life. He's like, oh. He's like, look at that. And he pointed out the intricacies. Oh, they did that. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. And my experience was watching his face as he looked at his creation and it was worshipful for me. What do you think God thinks as he looks down on us gathering together like this, praising his name? Don't you believe it's the same thing? But so much more. That God is looking at you and going, oh, you are my treasured possession. What was the result? They created a counterculture for the common good. That was the result of the early church. Uh, there's, a, there's a first century, second century, actually, pagan historian named Suetonius, and he wrote, uh, we have documents of him writing, and he says, these Christians, they're actually a different species. He's like, I don't have a category for them. Other historians I put in page two listed, what was it about them that made them stand out? What was it when they lived in this identity and they knew how to live? What were they doing? Look at this list, everybody. 
This is just some of the things. And by the way, Larry Hurtado, this book came out in 2016, Baylor University Press. Uh, it has no skin in the game. This isn't Pastor Larry Hurtado. This is academician Larry Hurtado talking about history. Talks about, wow, they were, this is amazing. They were against infanticide. Back in the Roman culture, uh, if a baby was born, it was up to the father whether that baby lived or didn't live. And if it didn't live, if it was the wrong gender, and can anyone guess what the gender was that most fathers didn't want in the first century? That baby was put outside or thrown on a trash heap. Read it for yourself, Google it. But you know what happened? These Christians with a new identity started going to the trash heap, grabbing these babies and raising them as their own. And over time, orphanages started. Why? Because the people of God valued life. They empowered women. Again, just again, just Google Roman patriarchy. In the first century, women had zero rights. In, in two weeks, Brian will talk about marriage and the completely countercultural ethic that was put on the church in light of who we are. They were radical in their sexual ethic. They were radical in caring for the poor. They were radical in caring for the sick. When plagues broke out and everyone fled the city, Christians stayed to their own death for some of them and cared for the sick. They mixed the races and classes together and they believed that Jesus and kept proclaiming this message, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, this is the way of life that grew the church. They were a different species. Or look at verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. They were aliens. They were resident aliens. This is who you are. This is who you are. You're a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's special possession. So in light of who you are, how do we live? Quickly, I'm just going to take five minutes on this. And you can look at it yourself. You fight. You fight. Passivity will not win the day in the character of Christ in your life. What does this mean personally? Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires. This is radical in their day because in the Roman world in the first century, if you had a desire, whether it be for food or sex or whatever, you just did it. All sex was in the first century Rome was a desire. And Peter's come and going, no, 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 not everything you want is good for you. So abstain from them because you know what? Look, he puts a whole different category. This is where I get the word fight from, which wage what? Oh, that we would believe. And this is why the title of the sermon, we are in a love affair, that's our identity, on a battlefield. On a battlefield. Passivity will not win the day. And so we fight because things are at war against our soul. We don't fight humans. We fight in, uh, for our own character in spiritual elements. As a matter of fact, you can see what I have on the top of page uh, three here. If you aren't battling, if I'm not battling my sinful desires, they've won. They're winning. If I'm not fighting for godly character in my life, using the power God's given me based on my identity in Christ, I will drift like a dead fish down a river to be an ungodly person. If 
talking about fighting for intimacy in the relationships that matter most, whether it be with peers or whatever relational status I have for me and my, my daughters or my marriage, I'll drift into complacency. We've got to fight in light of who we are. And then in a person, we have to live like supernaturally that the life of Christ lived through us. Look what he says here, church. This is really important. Live such good lives among the pagans. It's not a pejorative term. It just means someone that doesn't believe in God. Live good lives among the pagans. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see what? Your good deeds. Uh, literally, it means you doing good. It meant for them serving. They may see you serving. It's not moral behavior. It's just serving the other. And then they'll glorify God on the day he visits us. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In this war, in this battlefield, in other words, for Christ followers, for the church, we don't conquer our enemies. We win them over through love and service. Just like Jesus doing. They're going to accuse us of wrongdoing. They'll misunderstand us for how we contradict culture. That's just gonna happen. But on the other hand, they're gonna see us outliving and they cannot excuse our ethic or the social capital we provide in our day. You know this as well as I do, right? This is no news to anybody. You take followers of Christ and the social capital that Christians provide in the United States, our economy would tank. All the service. I'm not saying we're better than or anything, but, but we serve in such a way that it, it, it's, it's for the common good. And then politically, you ready? We'll talk about that next week. <laughs> but look what it says. Remember, their political leader was Nero, the guy that lit Rome on fire and blamed the Christians. The guy that actually impaled Christians, tarred them, and lit them on fire as backyard lights in the palace for his parties. And Peter has the audacity to say, under that emperor, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who were sent by him to punish those who do wrong and command those who do right. Later he would say, honor. What does this mean? It means we pray for. We live as good citizens. In our area, we, we have the, the privilege of democracy. I just want to ask us as followers of Christ, regardless, if this was five years ago, I'd ask the same question. Are we praying more for those in authority or are we posting more about those in authority? You show me where Peter gives us the right to not pray, but to post instead. I'm not against posting. Uh, some posting I'm actually against. I'm going off social media because I'm actually sickened by what the posts are. What I'm calling us to, church, is mad prayer. Good prayer. Not, I mean, extreme prayer. Trusting prayer, right? Uh, on a little level, I, I have the privilege of interacting with our local authorities. Um, and, you know, we don't align politically but we're all about a common good and, and I pray for them all the time and look for ways to bless them and speak into their lives and, and they you know, speak into our lives as a church where we're really, we love our city and we wanna see good come in our city. 
And so we talk about issues and we talk about uh, challenges facing our city from a, from a Christ-following perspective in a civil way that's actually beautiful. Friends, this is who we are and this is how we should live. Please go home and sit in these truths. Don't let identity theft co-opt the narrative of your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and I thank you so much for the truth of this. And Lord, I thank you that in this experiment, because we're all there, we're all wondering, does this work? Is this for real? Has this been tested? I pray against historical ignorance because we can look back in 2,000 years of history now from when this letter was written and we can see the difference. We see orphanages, we see hospitals, we see, uh, we see people coming to Christ, we see uh, the value of life at, at its best, Lord, whether it's in a womb or on a border or across an, an aging divide, we see your church rising up and standing for what you value because they know who they are. And now in this day and this age, may we know who we are so we can live well. Pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for tuning in to our message podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. We would love the opportunity to connect with you more. We are located in Redwood City, California, and you can find us online at wearepcc.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by simply searching for We Are PCC.